0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast episode 187. I'm your host Chris Webster with my co-host Paul Zimmerman. Today we talk about Paul's trip to Saudi Arabia and the work he helped to do there. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everybody. We have a special guest today. No, no, it's not a guest. It's our our old co-host, Paul. How are you, you doing, Paul?
0: <laughs> I'm doing okay, though. Uh, I, you know, as we know, I was away in the field for two months. Um, I just listened yeah. to all of the uh, the episodes while I was away with uh, with Ed Gonzalez Tennant. and yeah. those were excellent. I mean, I really am a big fan of his and his work, and and I uh, I really enjoyed those. So uh, I wasn't really able to listen to any of the podcasts when I was away. So I've got like fifty hours of
1: podcasts. <laughs> That I'm trying to catch up on, but, uh, but 25 when nice. I listen
0: to a double speed, right?
1: Nice, nice. Well, we're spending a, we're actually spending a couple of weeks before we go to the the Formula One race in Austin again this year, like we did last year. Mm-hmm. Spending a couple of weeks at a park we were at down outside of San Antonio, and that's not too far from where Ed is now located. He mentioned he's oh my god, what is it called the San Rio, something or other. I don't know. He's down closer to the border of Mexico. And, but not that San Antonio is that far away from there, but he said he's really close to where we're going to be. So, might be able to hook up with Ed and, and see some of the stuff he's doing there. And also, just out of coincidence, we've interviewed people from, and I don't know if we have on this podcast, but I've interviewed people before from the American Veterans Archaeological. Recovery, mm-hmm. something or other. I can't remember. They it's a it's a team of American veterans that are doing archaeology, basically, on different right. things. And one of the projects they're doing, I just saw their newsletter come out. They're going to be in basically. It sounds like within about five or ten minutes of where we're staying, during the time that we're there. So I might be able to go out and uh, interview them and and see what kind of see what kind of tech and things that they're using on their projects, especially with people who aren't necessarily trained as archaeologists. It'd be interesting to see their approach to things. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm hoping all that works out during the time that we're there. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. That could be an interesting episode. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So, you know, we're going to talk about your trip over to Saudi Arabia and some of the you know some of the methodologies and things over there but of course for people who are not necessarily familiar with say the CRM archaeology podcast anytime we talk about stuff on the CRM archaeology podcast we never mention companies we never mention clients we never mention like specifics because a lot of times there's contracts and things in place that are just you know they prohibit that sort of thing and we, and we like to honor that right so we're going to speak in a little more general terms and and that's really mm-hmm. just that's really just being respectful of, uh, you know, of the people involved because we're more interested in, in kind of what you did, over how you did what you did over there, not necessarily what right. you did or who you did it for. <laughs> so, yeah,
0: no, this is going to be a little yeah. odd for me because, you know, when I went away to uh, Lagash last year. Yeah, oh, well, and this year I came back with uh, with stories to tell. We had those episodes that we recorded in the field, or the episode that mm-hmm. we recorded in the field in Lagash, and there's really no prohibitions about what we're talking sure. about, you know, on an academic project like that. I'm sure that certain academic projects there would be things that are sensitive, especially around like human right. remains or you know things that might be considered treasures. But we didn't have mm-hmm. uh, we didn't have to worry about that on those. This project, as you just said, it's uh, it's actually a CRM project. I did not ask for permission <laughs> to talk about it here, but um, so i 'm going to have to be very circumspect sure <laughs> but uh, but I think I can do it because there is still you know we used a fair amount of tech and uh, mm-hmm. and it was it's an interesting contrast for me having these different kinds of experiences since I got back into archaeology into field archaeology between the CRM projects i 'm working on and the academic projects i've been working on, and uh, can do a little compare yeah. and contrast maybe without divulging. Who I worked for or uh, who they were working for, who they were hired by. Right. I wasn't going to mention Saudi, but then when I was listening to all those back episodes so with uh, with Ed, uh, we mentioned Saudi all the time. I was going to say a large Middle Eastern country, but uh, so oops, I'm sure if somebody really wanted to that. go down and you know suss out what I was doing with whom, they could probably figure it out. Yeah, but yeah, there are certain sensitivities. I know, for example, we were asked to take photographs of people working in the field for for the client mm-hmm. of our own team. And bonus points if people had some of the company swag on them. Right. However, <laughs> none of those photos, <laughs> even though we've been taking these photos, and even though they know that the uh, that the company I, w- I was working for wanted them and that the client would appreciate them, that over the course of like a month hasn't gone through channels and gotten Mm. the go-ahead so i knew that if i was going to ask for permission to speak in something less in generalities we'd be waiting till december or something until i got that permission so uh you know i I don't think we're going to upset anybody though
1: yeah well and you're right so and and like i said that's not really our focus anyway it doesn't matter the who uh it just matters the how that's what we're concerned with on Mm. this show so let's set the stage I just want to point out, I have to go back and, and, and review the tape, so to speak, but I'm pretty sure you mentioned you were going to Saudi Arabia before you even left, like on this show. Yeah, I think I probably did. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I did. <laughs> I think I opened that door. <laughs> right, right. Um, so let's talk about just... Uh, so we can set the stage so people can understand like what the environment you were working in was like. We did that with Lagash too, but what, what was mm-hmm. the... I mean, when I think of Saudi Arabia, I think of a huge freaking desert, which I don't think I'm too far off there. But what what uh, what was the environment you were working in? And on top of that, what I guess what kind of archaeology were you doing? Survey, excavation, stuff like that.
0: Right. So the big desert is one of the things I always try to uh, dissuade people of with their, their mental impression of what Arabia <laughs> <Right>. is. <laughs> For background, I did my dissertation research in Yemen, which is down at the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time in Arabia. I did also work in Petra, which is in northern Arabia. Oh yeah, and yes, big chunks of it are very desert. The entire area is, with the exception of a few spots in the mountains and in, in Yemen, uh, the entire area is very arid. Mm -hmm. So that, that part of your mental image is accurate, but it's not rolling sand dunes forever and ever. Right, There have been people living there since people have been people, you know, so a couple hundred thousand years and people tend not to live in rolling sand dunes. They live in places where there's (laughs) things like water and other resources around. So there's a long and deep historical and archeological tradition of people living in such places predominantly mountains and coastal zones. So mm-hmm. if you look at the Arabian Peninsula, you've got the, uh, the Red Sea on one side, you've got the Arabian Sea on another side, you've got the Persian Gulf on the third side. It's bounded by water. A lot of people mm-hmm. live on those coastal zones. And also if you look at a topographic map, you'll see that particularly the west edge of the peninsula is very mountainous. And so, we were in Western Saudi Arabia working in, yes, desert environments, very hot, very dry, You know, typically like 110 during the day, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. 110 going up and down mountains, really craggy Millions mountains the whole time. And yes, yeah. it was a survey. It was a survey and it was different kinds of survey. And maybe we'll get into a little bit of the detail of that. But fundamentally, we were working on a large development project. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to find out, just like CRM in the US, we wanted to find out what potential archeological resources would be impacted by that development project. Mm -hmm. So we had a big team and we were doing various kinds of survey. Some of us were tasked with going to sites that were already known, and we had a registry of about a thousand different sites, and others were tasked with going over with some selected parcels of land and just walking transects to see what we could find
1: mm-hmm.
0: okay, and yeah, so that was the uh, that was the bulk of the first half of uh, of what we were doing there it was those two different kinds of survey, and I participated in both,
1: okay. it's interesting. you mentioned the 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 red Sea, Persian Gulf, the Arabian Sea. I've never been. Well, I guess I guess technically I've never been to Saudi Arabia, but I've been in all of those seas (laughs) because Mm. I came through the Suez Canal on the Enterprise back in 96. And then we came down through the Red Sea and we went right around up into the Persian Gulf and did a stop in Dubai and a stop in although we couldn't leave the fleet landing area in Dubai. There was a big issue. So we didn't get to see the cool stuff in Dubai. And then uh, Jubal Ali, which I can't actually remember where that's at. It's in the UAE somewhere. So, mm-hmm. but anyway, it was just such a such an interesting place and some place I'd want to go back to again and and visit for sure. But yeah, so crazy. So what was the so what was the last half of the the time you're there like? <laughs> so the last half, well, we were still doing
0: the. The, the existing site survey, we finished up the uh, pedestrian survey of those parcels looking for new sites mm-hmm. fairly early on, with the exception of a few that okay. we had to get extra permissions for. And then we were just documenting ex- you know, previously recorded sites, plus, of course, any other sites that we'd find along the way. And the kinds of sites mm-hmm. that we'd find, it was any time period, archaeological time period. So, for example, early on, we found a, a relic lake bed that had level walk cores on it. That's pretty cool, you know, So very nice. old, that is pretty uh, forty thousand cool. plus yeah. years old. Yeah. Other things were villages that were occupied into the twentieth century, you know. So wow. Ottoman period villages, right? So a- anything in between. The majority of what we found were various kinds of. The dating is a little fuzzy. Neolithic or Bronze Age sites that were mostly either like rings of stones that were probably residences. Very Mm -hmm. large rings of stones that were monuments of a kind and cairns that were mostly burials. So, and a whole variety of different kinds of, you know different variants on all of these how they were built where exactly they were situated on the landscape how many of them would be found in relationship to another whether you would find the the like residential rings next to the cairns or in totally separate areas you know there was a lot of variability on that that side but we did see enough of these kinds of sites that we started pulling out different patterns mm-hmm. you know what we could expect in association with something else uh, and that was really fun i mean again back to my um yeah. to my dissertation I love working in Arabia and I'd kind of forgotten that. And Mm -hmm. I was brought on this project because of my knowledge of of Arabian archaeology. And Within, you know, 15 minutes of getting out there the first day, it all started washing back. I would forgot, I hadn't used any of this stuff for 20 years. It all started (laughs) coming back and it was so much fun to see this, uh, you know, and the variety of sites and the people that I worked with and the people that we met there, you know, the locals. Just the whole
1: suite of it. it was really enjoyable. Awesome. All right. Well, let's take a short break and then we will come back in and, and continue this discussion about your time over there in Saudi Arabia. We'll be back in a minute. <laughs> Welcome back to Archaeotech 187. And we are, well, we're talking with Paul on his uh, experiences in Saudi Arabia the last couple of months doing some work out there. So let's let's get into a little bit about, uh, obviously, this is the Archaeotech podcast. So let's talk about how you guys were doing things. And I, I want to take a short detour before that and just ask you... I guess really quick what the recording methodology is over there. You know, I'm thinking like, you know, Nevada uses the IMAX forms to record sites, California, the DPR. Does that area or maybe I don't know if there's provinces or states within Saudi Arabia, but do they have their own regimented, you know, this is how we record archaeology sites in this area? Because I I know actually some countries don't. Right. It's kind of like the Wild West. Yeah. But some countries do, and they're very into their their cultural history and and have very specific ways to record it. So tell us a little bit about that, if you can.
0: Yeah, it was to the extent I can talk about it it was a little jarring to me. There isn't yeah. a a formal format for how to record sites, and the registry that we yeah. had was kind of all over the board, both in terms of the uh, the terminology that was used and the detail that was provided to us of the pre the, that roughly one thousand pre existing sites. Mm-hmm. I didn't always agree with what was called a site. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oftentimes, I felt like, well, this site and the next two over are actually the same site. And sometimes I said, uh, well, this site and the uh, next site on the list, even though the list is two sites, yeah, yeah they're really one site.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah the, the just the way
0: things were split <laughs> and lumped together yeah anyhow so th- yeah the uh, the saudis really opened up uh, there was work done archaeological work particularly in the 70s and 80s and then they were mostly closed to outside archaeologists until about 5 years ago and so okay. they are really trying to ramp up their uh their expertise in the field of their own archaeology and part of that is actually is bringing in teams like the one I was on to work with them to try to improve their own data recording and reporting. And mm-hmm. you know, it's a work in progress. Okay. So we didn't have specific forms. We didn't have those IMAX forms, right? <laughs> or anything right. like it. What we did have was a fairly structured workflow from the company that I was with. Yeah. That dictated certain ways. Uh, and this was negotiated with the with the clients that they were hired by as to what things they thought were important. Okay. One little back point here is that the Department of Antiquities isn't a separate department, it's part of the Department of Tourism in Saudi. Okay. So a lot of what was being presented to us as to the its importance wasn't necessarily its importance historically, archaeologically, in a way that you and I, Chris, might look at it, but mm-hmm. its potential value for tourism. Okay. Which to me felt a little weird. It's mm-hmm. certainly sensible. I can understand why they do that. But it did mean that that some of the questions asked and some of the ways that we did things were prioritized, not the way I would have done it. Again, sure doesn't matter That's not the way i would have done it i don't think i've ever gone anywhere that uh, is exactly the way i would have done it and it's <laughs> nice to learn a new way but uh, but so we had this system in place and
1: okay.
0: early on in the project when i was working on the the uh the parcels survey and we just walked transects right we there were a super group of like Geez, seven of us, I think, Mm -hmm. Uh, and we would just get out to the edge of one of the parcels and spread out, and you know, walk our transects and see what we could see, recording a new site if we found it. But very rarely did we find it doing that. Yeah. When we switched around a little bit, and I got moved on to the existing site survey, the groups got broken up differently, and so it was myself and two other archaeologists, and the three of us formed a really good team. Basically, there were three things that we had to do. Uh, All our recording was being done on iPads. Mm Mm-hmm. There was narrative and checkbox recording that was being done in a custom version of Codify, and uh, I feel okay mentioning that here because Codify has shown up on Architect many times, and uh, so I was working with Michael Ashley a bit, uh, yeah, many times, uh, discussing things that could be improved or changed, having some questions about it, a little tech support here and there, but he Mm -hmm. came out to the project, and so... Yeah, we're working with that as our primary like I said text and checkbox kind of recording interface. Yeah. We also have to take photographs obviously and the photographs we're taking with a program called Theodolite.
1: Oh yeah. And if I've you're not familiar
0: that. with it, yeah, so it's it's interesting in that it uh it gives you the option of overlaying the 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 notes that you take about a photograph yeah. directly onto the photograph. And so that means that you don't really have to have a separate photo log right right if you're facing northeast it records what your direction you're facing if you wrote down there's a picture of uh an overview of the site facing northeast it can print that directly on it'll it save two copies of the photograph the the untouched one and the one with your notes overlaid upon it uh so that was really handy um yeah it's cool i don't think it used uh, to
1: do that (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I don't I, know. I've it, never it, it, used it
0: before. I've heard about it before, but, uh, but yeah. this, was, uh, this was an integral part of, uh, of the workflow that we had. Nice. Um, and then the last thing that we had was obviously we had uh, GIS. Mm-hmm. And so the program we were using is ICMT GIS, which is a little wonky. It feels like it's an old Windows 95 GIS that's been somehow ported to iOS, Certain things that you could not do without crashing it. But once we learned what buttons not to press and what things not to try, (laughs) (laughs) it worked really well for us. And the reason why we were using that was because it was recording locally. So as opposed to things like field notes, ArcGIS field notes, which has a cloud component, Mm -hmm. the client wanted us to keep all the data in country. So we had to go with something that recorded locally
1: okay okay so that was my other question too is you you mentioned this GIS was uh, ported over to iOS which kind of brings me to the other question about equipment because I know Codify has been on this show lots of times actually you know back in the day Mm -hmm. when it was first getting off the ground. Michael's been on the show a number of times. And yep. I know Codify was and more than likely still is based on FileMaker, which is an Apple program. And does that mean you guys were using like iPads out in the field? And then you also had this GIS on those iPads and you had Theodolite on the iPads as well. And you're just doing everything on one device. Is that what that, is that how that worked? Well, we were doing it on three devices,
0: the three of us okay. on our team. So oh, gotcha. one okay. was in charge of most of the uh, the the narrative content another one was in charge of most of the photographic content and i was in charge of the gis and just like you've used before yes these were these were gis enabled gps enabled ipads tablets yeah Uh, just like you've used before we had uh we had external GPS receivers that we connected mm-hmm. them to the GIS software so we could get higher accuracy than what would be available directly in the iPad's built-in GNSS receiver right and so that generally works fairly really well we were using a combination of SX blues and uh Bad Elf flexes and okay yeah you know, there were some issues with the bad elves in particular. There was also an issue that we uh, had a whole bunch of external antenna cables that were a bad batch, and they had the tendency to fall apart in the heat. <laughs> so <laughs> when it's one hundred and ten out, <laughs> you don't want your yeah
1: your, your antenna cables for, to just like melt and fall apart. But they sure did that. Well, I feel I feel like one hundred and ten is beyond the capabilities of a lot of things. I'm curious to see how the iPads handled one hundred and ten.
0: You have to keep them out of the sun,
1: right? You hold Absolutely. them so
0: that the uh, they sh- have as little area exposed to the sun as possible, and what mm-hmm. area is exposed is hopefully the back side of it, not the glass side of it, to keep them from overheating. I never had any trouble okay. with mine overheating or running out of battery, but uh, I know that the other people on my project that happened to them fairly
1: regularly. If you're conscious of it though, yeah, you can, you can mitigate that. So, and you did a good job on that. I mean, you use tablets up here in Nevada too. I say here, I'm not in Nevada, but in Nevada on the projects we worked on and I wouldn't say Mm -hmm. it was 110, but it was definitely higher altitudes. So more UV exposure to the glass and, and, and definitely not cool in some of those areas. So a lot of the same strategies employed, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and I've used the iPads very effectively without overheating, fortunately um, at Lagash in Iraq. For me right now, the biggest ding I've got against using iPads in the field, and I I wouldn't do without them because they're they're really integral to the way that I think about data collection at this point. But to me, Mm -hmm. the biggest ding against them is screen brightness, right? I'm working in parts of the world that have a really bright sun. You know, if we had that problem in Nevada, um, I've had that problem in Iraq, and I've had that problem in Saudi where you just can barely see what's on the screen because the sun is beating down too hard on it. You know, so you try to shade it with your body or find a corner that you can sit down or something. But you can't always do that.
1: The other big issue with all iOS devices to begin with, you know, so the iPhone and the iPad, is well before it overheats, well before it gives you the temperature overheat, it purposely dims the screen. So you can you can raise Mm -hmm. the screen brightness all you want, but it is purposely dimming that screen to prevent an overheating situation and i think it you probably uses a combination of not only temperature but also actual brightness on the screen you know i've had times where it hasn't even been out for very long like my phone or something that's sitting on a, a holder on the car or something like that and you got sun going right on top of it that screen will go Oof. go to a, a certain level of dimness right away and there's just simply nothing yep. you can do about it unless you cool the device yep. down <laughs> so yeah it gets frustrating for sure
0: yeah, um, that like I said, that's my biggest ding against using this tech. It's going to get yeah. better because they've been getting brighter. And I know that, especially in the drone space, there are certain tablets. I can't think of the brand name right now, but there's certain tablets that are made specifically for use outdoors, and they mm-hmm. have extra brightness beyond you know your typical Android or uh, or iPad. Right. Yeah, so you know that it's a matter of a couple of years, I think, before. Ones that are bright enough without overheating and such are are going to be very common. I think we're just on the cusp of that. But at the moment, that's that was probably our biggest frustration. We had a, um, our truck was a Nissan Pathfinder. Patrol okay. Pathfinder. Oh, I can't even remember right now. Anyhow, they it had it in the center console. Yeah, uh, yeah it's Pathfinder. In the center console, it had a cooler. <laughs> so uh, Nice. If we could uh, get back to the car, we'd toss our iPads into the cooler in the center console. Nice. I mean, like air-conditioned cooler, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's awesome. So, uh, so yeah. that, that was handy for us. Unfortunately, we mm. did have to use it, and it would have been better if we didn't, but uh, yeah, that's fine. That's It's what you deal with, right? You always have to be a little adaptive in the field, figure out what to doesn't quite work the way you'd ideally like it to, and then how you work around that problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, going back to the to the tablets and the, the kind of field tablets, I would assume most of those are Android-based only because, you know, obviously Apple doesn't let its software go on anything that's yeah. on an Apple tablet, and Apple refuses to use anything but glass on their tablets which is beautiful and nice if you're sitting in a you know a coffee shop in or an office building in New York City but if you're out in the desert working in the heat the glass is your your biggest detriment so you know those ones that have a tendency to not overheat as quickly probably have plastic or some version of plastic screens on them uh, or at least covers over the over the uh, computer screens and that just helps you know that glass man does it just suck in the heat and uh, yeah. even in 70 degree weather you can have I've, I've mentioned this lots of times and i've seen it happen before you can have your device overheat and you're like it's not even hot out but if your glass is sitting straight <laughs> onto the sun that uv not just the heat but the uv will literally overheat your glass and yeah. uh, it doesn't have to be 100 degrees for that to happen so all right well let's take another break and when we come back we'll wrap up this discussion with paul about his trip to saudi arabia back in a minute welcome back to archaeo 187 and we're wrapping up this discussion with paul and his trip over to saudi arabia so so, Paul, we've talked about a little bit of the data collection. I am curious because I don't think we've mentioned it before. Was there any sort of like like just non-standard site recording stuff? And I love the fact that like recording with a tablet and software is essentially standard. But did you guys bring any other technology out there, any drone work, any GPR, anything like that on this uh, phase of the project?
0: No, there's nothing like that in this phase. My understanding is that there's going to be a fair amount of drone work in a future phase. Mm-hmm. It's all going to be conducted by Saudis. I looked okay. into the rules of bringing my own drone mm-hmm. to Saudi before I went there. but uh, And i th- pretty sure I could have done it, but it was uh, just enough paperwork and tests and such <laughs> that I didn't have the time to do it. Right. I really wish I did have a drone because like I said, very, very mountainous, very yeah. craggy. My Boots, which are only a year old, are utterly—they look like I've just put them in a blender. (laughs) Just destroyed. (laughs) Yeah, somehow they held together, but they they, just—they look like I've gotten in a big fight uh, and lost. (laughs) Yeah, but so many times we're—you know—we're up on a ridge or in a saddle or you know, God forbid, on a peak of something, and Mm -hmm. we want to see down around the edge, and the way that we had to do it was you know, hoof it. And yeah. it would have been much better for me if I could just pop that drone out and uh, and fly it around just to take a quick look. Oh yes, we do need to yeah. go 200 meters this direction because there's more stuff that way, as opposed to right. you know sending somebody scouting it. You know, fortunately nobody got hurt. Um, I'm really you know that was a great thing is that it was kind of like an academic project. Mm-hmm. But everybody staffing is an experienced CRM professional. And so nice. a lot of the kind of silliness you'd get from having somebody too green in the field did not happen, right? Okay. You just- Awesome. People knew their physical limitations. They knew how to get around. They knew how to negotiate uh, rough terrain, so on and so forth. And so, uh, so things worked really, really professionally and uh, and efficiently that way. And that that was fun. You know, when I got into field archaeology, I wanted to combine the, the CRM and the academic archaeology and you know, pick and choose. And so, this one was a, was a very refreshing balance. Partially, I think, because. Mm-hmm. Uh, Some of the principals on the project themselves are, um, you know, came from academic backgrounds and specifically academic backgrounds with experience in Arabia. So, you know, when I got to hang out with them and we could geek out on Arabian archaeology, that was a lot of fun. But yeah, all the CRM people I worked with were
1: just no nonsense. They knew what to do. And that actually does kind of speak towards some other things like Rachel and I recorded an episode, the last episode of Archaeotech about field Like technology Mm -hmm. that can help you not only keep you efficient, but keep you safe in the field as well in some cases. And when you combine that kind of stuff with professionalism and just an understanding and not not only professionalism, but experience, Mm -hmm. things like the the tragedy that happened with the young lady in, in Louisiana a couple of months ago, you know, it's just underlying health conditions notwithstanding you can really work in any environment if you're well prepared for it. You know what I mean? Like, if you know what you're getting into, you've uh, hopefully been there before, and you understand all the things that you need to do to actually be successful, and you do those things, more importantly, you stick to it, then I feel like you can really just work. You really could work anywhere in any environment. You just have to be prepared for it, you know? So, and you guys, I think, prove that.
0: Yeah. And I think another thing that's interesting too, to me is that, uh, so many of the tools that we use, you know, I told you about these three particular programs, but a lot of the work that we did was, you know, trying to find how to get into places. So we were using Avenza, <laughs> right. which we've talked about before. We were using Google Maps. We were using Google Earth mm-hmm. tools that weren't specific to working in Saudi, tools that we've all gotten comfortable using in the US and other parts of the world as well, just because that's what you use.
1: Did you have online access in the field or was everything downloaded?
0: Yeah. No, our internet access was weird. Where we were living was uh, in a small town. We It was a big crew. So some lived in a bigger city. I lived with the other half of the crew in a much smaller town, mm-hmm. kind of in the middle of nowhere. We didn't have regular internet access. We all had SIM cards and would tether our equipment right. to that. Most of where I went, I had, you know, maybe a bar or two of 4G. Mm-hmm. Most of where I went, which was good <laughs> enough to like... Kind of download the latest whatever from Google Earth, but it wasn't guaranteed, and so there were plenty of times right. that we had to you know rely on whatever we'd preloaded in Avenza uh, in order to find our way out to a site and yeah, you know, that worked. Uh, again, it mm-hmm. a lot of it just comes down to you know having a suite of different tools that you can use and pick and choose what's going to be best at the moment. And also, like I said about the uh, the the archaeologist being experienced, having that experience, so we didn't have to like agonize. Yeah, over what tool should I use to find out how to get to my site? Here are three tools. I'm going to use the one that's going to work right now because I've used them all before. Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> you know? right, right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so th- that was good. The uh, but the internet access was um, an issue, particularly like uh, the PDF reader that we had for that site registry. Updated itself. Well, needed to be updated twice when I was in the field and couldn't mm. actually take the update because I was out of out of cell coverage. I used up wow. huge, insane amounts of data on my cell plan. <laughs> I kept on having to re up it. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, yeah, so that, that, that also wasn't perfect, but you know, again, nothing's ever perfect in the field, you know, just as long as it works well enough. Yeah. That's
1: where we got to. Okay. What about offloading data at the end of the day with those internet issues? Or did you guys send all the, send all the tablets back with the guys who were going into the city? No,
0: um, well, we definitely did the, the latter uh, on occasion, mm-hmm. but we weren't going into the city frequently enough, so we would offload the data, and so we had a workflow and server set up so that we could get the backup file from Codify, shape files out of the GIS, uploaded to the site. the uh, The photographs that we took were backed up locally, and uh, you know onto hard drives. And then, uh, and some of the photos were imported into Codify. And so became part of that, uh, that Codify export. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there was a, a established workflow, established naming conventions where we had to put things. And the only trick that we had was that, those codify files, if they had photographs in them, could be pretty large. So we couldn't upload sure. them from our living room where we preferred working. <laughs> but the guy in the project on my team who was in charge of that would have to go back to his bedroom to upload from there where he had a slightly stronger signal. You know, and nice. it was a matter of, you know, taking 10 or 15 minutes to upload from his bedroom versus a couple, you know, hour or so from, uh, sure. from the living room. So that we just had to work around that again, not Thanks. a killer. The other thing actually, and I hadn't mentioned this, my ticket, plane ticket got messed up. So I ended up working into the next phase of the project and yep. the next phase, I only got to work on it a week, but it was really interesting because those GIS files in particular were then being taken, into a GIS, a big computer that they had in the big city, mm-hmm. and being processed there with some machine learning in order to help identify sites. So the last few things that we were doing was kind of like the pre-registered sites, uh, the pre-recorded mm-hmm. sites and visiting them, except for this was going to places that had high likelihood of being sites. Okay, And so we would go there and record either the, the presence or the absence of sites that the computer had spat out at us. So that was nice. exciting to be part of that project. And that's part of the whole thing that had been sold to the client, the development of this system. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I got to work on it, on the the data collection, the initial data collection, but then also some of the ground proofing afterwards. So that that was a lot of fun for me, just because I do think that this is an important way forward. You yeah. Know, allowing, as we have better and better access to, uh, to satellite and aerial imagery of various kinds, allowing the computers to do some of the predictive work that, uh, before it would be done by, you know, by archeologists pouring over photographs. Now I let the computer mm-hmm. chug away and do that and then spit back,
1: you know, here are some likely sites for you. Nice. That is kind of the dream, isn't it? That's awesome. I love yeah. it. All right. So anything else that, uh, we didn't really get to that you think you should mention about this project? Uh, no, there are going to be more phases of it,
0: provided that yeah. uh, the client continues to be happy with the work that was done. Uh, I'm hoping that I don't get anybody in trouble, uh, especially myself, for what i said right now, but uh, <laughs> but I think it's vague enough. But it also, it in some ways, I, I feel like I've got a little bit of a glimpse of the future of how a big project like this will be carried out. You know, it nice. was born digital. It was digital processing. It was a collaborative effort between a lot of different uh, field specialists, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not just, not shovel bombs, not, not, uh, you know, field techs, but people who, even if their, their official title was field tech, were so experienced that they were excellent at it, right? Yeah. And you know an academic component and tourism component and uh, you know a preservation component—all these different things converging. Yeah, you
1: know, it was a good project. I was really glad to be part of it, and I'm awesome. hoping that I continue to be part of it. Nice, nice. Well, that's great. So it was awesome hearing about those experiences. And uh, I don't know what we're talking about next time, but I'm sure it will be fascinating. So it's good to have you back, Paul. Before we close out this episode i need to mention that over on our member slack channel for archaeotech if you're not a member of the apn go to arcpodnet.com slash members and you can check it out we've had a few new members just today and walter Upperman, who was on this show talking about archaeology in flanders Mm -hmm. which i always forget is like a region of belgium right Yeah. (laughs) yeah he uh He liked our episode that Rachel and I did on different applications and things like that for uh, field archaeology and gear and stuff like that. And he has his own list of things that we didn't mention that are over in the uh, in the Slack channel. So I'll have you uh, if you're a member, go check that out because he's got some good stuff over there. Uh, If you're not a member, then please arcpodnet.com forward slash members and you help us out. It's only $7.99 a month. Or you can get twenty five percent off by going through the for the whole year, just like Jordan and a few others did today. They got their the annual membership. Yay. So we really appreciate that. <laughs> I know, right? So we, we love it when we can bring more people in. And and you know, honestly, mm-hmm. not only does that keep the lights on, but I mean, I just love having and seeing these conversations take place amongst members in the Slack yeah. channel, right? And that's just that's kind of why I wanted to start this whole network was to generate conversation and, and get people talking about this stuff. So I'm glad to see it's happening over there. All right. Well, with that, I think we will uh, sign off this week and we'll be back. Like I said, in two weeks with uh, another great episode. Thanks again, Paul. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. i glad to be back.
0: Glad to talk to you again. And, uh, yeah, we're going to have some, uh, I've seen a few articles while I was away, didn't get to read them because, you know, that internet issue. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think that this is going to be some uh, some good content coming up. Nice. All
1: right. Well, thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Architect podcast. Links
0: to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Contact us at chris at Archaeology Podcast and paul at Lugol.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening.
1: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland,